brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. And brought to you by American Yogi. In a world increasingly driven toward the grind, find your outlet for peace. American Yogi is a mindfulness-based apparel and wellness brand with international retreats, free classes, and rad clothing and accessories to support you along life's journey. Find American Yogi on Instagram at liveamericanyogi or at americanyogi.com. American Yogi is proud to support the Brass and Unity podcast and its community with the code BRASS15. Join the mindful counterculture. Live American Yogi. All right, everyone. Dr. John Deloney's on the show. I've been trying to reach out to this guy for a minute. They got back to me and here he is. Do you guys realize how different this doctor is? There's so many doctors out there. Do you understand? Do you know how different you are comparable to other doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, individuals who treat people who actually spend their life just giving to others? Do you realize how drastically different you are? Not really. Cause I, I, I don't know. I just <laughs> have a small group of the same friends I've had for a long time. So, uh, now, how, yeah, how am I different? You're incredibly different. You have a, what I would consider a more open mind, a more, um, ah, okay. modern. Here's the thing that I like about you more than other doctors. Let's start with that. I like this because you're one of those doctors who doesn't stop learning. You don't stop. Uh, you don't sit gotcha. in your, in the time you went to school and then the education mm -hmm. base you had there and the tools and the tips and the ways to better your life. You don't stop and you continue to progress. So what I like the most about you is probably that. The other thing that I enjoy is your audiobooks. Um, if anybody has listened to your show, the Dr. John, John Delaney show, uh, Deloney show, it's interesting because you have people call in, uh, which is a different dynamic than anything I've ever seen. And you address in the moment, real conversations, which I think is necessary and needed. And that's most of the time why people don't, in my opinion, uh, really talk very often is because they they're nervous. And if you put them on a phone, they have anonymity and they're able to actually talk to you in a way that's more vulnerable. So the things I'd like to get into with you today, if you're comfortable with this is I finished your book this morning and you put a lot of personal stuff into your book. A lot mm -hmm. of, uh, little tips. You kind of skate over really quietly, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And maybe because of the pace I was reading your book. But, no, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I was intentional about, uh, there's a lot of Easter eggs in there. Yeah. Yeah. So do you mind if we dive into some of those? No, we can go, go as deep as you want. And let, let me make one thing. I'm glad that you called that out. Uh, I was a college professor for years, just a nerd on top, like just in a pile of nerds. And I think the greatest gift grad school gave me was not the information I got at grad school. It was how to learn and how to continue to create, where to go get in good information and how to create a network of people who are way smarter than you so they can continue to teach you. Um, not, I, I think, you, man, you nailed it. That's, that's one of the greatest uh, compliments I've received in the last couple of years is it sounds like I'm, I'm trying to keep learning because, man, I don't know anything. And then when I think I do, I have a six-year-old little uh, daughter and she yeah. reminds me just how stupid I am. So, no, man, it's good. You got to keep, you got to keep, 
learning. It's just too much stuff coming at us all at the same time. So good for you. Well, That's awesome. well, thanks. Well, I think it's important. Again, I've also been in therapy for 12 years every week. So I pay attention <laughs> to some shit. That could be my, that could be just me. But it's a long old, time in therapy, Kelsey. We'll figure that out by the end of this podcast. Oh, don't you, don't you stress. There's ugh, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people. That's what it takes. It takes a village. Um, <laughs> But six-year-olds are funny because they'll call you on their shit so quick. We have a They're six-year-old. The, He's the exact the same. The best. The best. And, ah, oh, it's devastating. It is. They really make you uh, realize where the level is. I My son schooled me on some full-on psychological moment standoff we were having with my husband. We were like, no technology at dinner table. We believe in dinner. We believe in community. And uh, he was like, why do you guys, without, and I mean, no beats, nothing missed, turns around. Why do you guys watch the TV when you're watching, when you're eating dinner? Because it's on in the background. He's like, yeah. why can you do it and I can't? He didn't miss a beat. I laughed so hard, I actually slid down my husband behind <laughs> the counter and I burst out laughing because that's when you realize, okay, someone is a lot smarter than you very quickly. So the things I wanna talk about in your book, uh, I know your team was so wonderful and amazing to give me if I had any prompts, but I, I'm, Oh, gonna, you don't have to use it. You don't have to use any of them. Scrap them all. You're going to uh, play by my rules today. So excellent. Let's talk about um, something I feel like a lot of people go through and don't talk about because of different levels uh, at it happening. Uh, you lost a child based mm -hmm. off of what I heard. And number one, I want to acknowledge I'm really sorry that that had happened to you. Obviously, I know you found ways to move forward from that. But a lot of people, uh, I think one in three lose children uh, when trying to conceive. And so when going through that, I want to understand how you and your wife and your dynamic and how personal you'd like to get, how you two coped with that. Because I do have quite a few listeners who, unfortunately, due to the overdose epidemic that is currently widespread, but very, very vocalized, uh, vocalized in the downtown east side of where we live in Vancouver, British Columbia. I know too many people who have lost children to this. So can mm. you kind of give us something that can move them forward? Yeah. So um, for a, I guess a point of clarification, and, and for some, they don't draw a distinction, uh, but I just I, I would be as clear as possible. We had three... Um, miscarriages the third one was pretty gnarly um and yes. it was a ruptured ectopic pregnancy and uh, my wife is this was a tough farm girl from west texas and so she just she really settled in and said I, i'm not gonna believe this is happening and she almost bled out in our in our living room there and i was just putting along at work like an idiot um in all honesty uh, i was awful i did a terrible 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 job um, as a partner to somebody who was going through this, who experienced this. And then I had no reference point for grief, which is bananas because I spent my career sitting with people whose 14 year old son had just died by suicide or whose 22 year old son had just been in a car wreck or 26 year old daughter who just died. Um, and so I'd, I'd been around it. I'd, I'd never waded through it. And so, um, Lucky for my wife, and I say lucky tongue-in-cheek because it was anything but, um, I was a crisis expert. I was getting a second PhD. I was driving around helping the police officers, and I was showing up to these scenes in the middle of the night doing death notifications. And so when miscarriage number one happened, miscarriage number two happened, man, I set off with a bunch of charts and graphs and a bunch of well, here's what your body's doing and you can cry, but it's fine. I guess you're sad, but your body, mother nature knows best. I said all this stupid oh. stuff, right? And um, the story goes, and it's a true story. Um, I was at a conference, a counseling conference, and I was such an arrogant ass that I, I saw one of the session titles was how to counsel women who've experienced pregnancy loss. And I was so arrogant, I thought, oh, I could probably help with this presentation. And I quote, because I'm an expert in this. This is the inner, inner dialogue. So I go sit in this session, waiting for her to call on me for my expertise. And she begins, the, she begins the presentation by saying, hey, let's just run through these real quick. I know all y'all know these, but here's the seven things to never say to someone who's experienced pregnancy loss. 
And by the time she got to number seven, uh, I, I was, I wanted to crawl under the table. Uh, I was, I was weeping there at my chair. And I, ultimately I left um, because I had come, I had just taken my wife and rubbed her nose in all my answers and all my expertise and all my charts and graphs. And they did nothing. I, viol- I, I completely violated the relationship part. And um, it took a really rough, I would say a gut-wrenching conversation on our front porch in a rainstorm of her explaining to me what she had experienced, what she had gone through by herself, what she had hidden, what um, I had missed. Um, It was rough. And we had to decide from that point forward, we're going to continue our marriage and we're going to have to rebuild something new because I had left my wife standing alone in the rain uh, while she grieved this thing by herself. And I hadn't grieved the loss of those three kids. So I went and got their names tattooed on my body. And it's something that I had conversations with our son and with our daughter when she was ultimately born. Um, and so they've become, the names are not a, a hidden in our home, if you will. They've been integrated into our lives. I, yeah, I, I'm sorry to touch on that, but I think it's important. No, 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 no. I'm, don't, don't be sorry at all. It's, a, it's an important conversation to have. Of course. So those seven things, do you know or do you remember exactly what they are to never say? No, not off the top of my head. Um, okay. We'll find it, them and I'll put them in the show notes because I think they'll be useful. Here's, here's the, the meta. The meta mm-hmm. was stop talking. Your presence is infinitely more important than whatever stupid pithy saying you're about to give to somebody else. Show up and bring tacos. Show up and bring something to eat and show up and be quiet. Just be, just be present. And listen and say, I'm sorry. Say, I hate that this happened to you. Weep with people. Um, I remember when she had her ectopic pregnancy, I'd shown up to enough crisis situations that I remember seeing the doctor who was wheeling her down the hall. It was became a very uh, touch and go situation. And the doctor was the head of the OBGYN at the research university where I worked. And I happened to know her professionally, too. And she had what I call crazy eyes. And you've probably seen this. You can show up to a scene, even if there's blood and guts and bodies of people, but you know the scene is settled and everyone's kind of moving through. Actually, people, if you've been to those scenes, they're laughing and they're smiling. Like, it's just a different vibe. But there's the occasion you show up and someone's got crazy eyes. That's You know the scene's live. And I showed up and saw her, this doctor's eyes. And I was holding my son's hand. He was young at the time. And I remember my first thought was, oh, this is the last time I see her alive because I, I recognize that that view. And later on, we were sitting in. I was I had called somebody to come pick up my son and I went to the waiting room while they were just waiting just to see what was going to happen. And then a buddy of mine, he's a rancher from also from West Texas. He's taller than me. He always wears a hat. I mean, he's he's a stereotypical West Texan. He walked in, said zero words, and he just sat by me, said nothing. 30 minutes, one hour, one and a half hours, two hours. Then the, the doctor comes in and she says, first words out of her mouth were, your wife's okay. She's going to be okay. And we lost the baby, but your wife's okay. And my buddy reaches over and grabs my tennis shoe. And he said no words. And I look up at him and he was crying tears that I didn't even have yet. And he said nothing. So take all seven of those things and just wrap them up in show up and be quiet and be still. That's, that's, that's the, that's the meta there. Um, was your buddy ex-military by chance? Cause it seems nope. like he's dealt with this <laughs> shit before. Just, he's just a, he's, I mean, he's walked through his own stuff as we all have, which is ironic because when I show up to those situations, I never said anything. I just, I knew enough to show up to presence. I missed it in my own house though. Right. I missed it in my own house. Yeah. But it's because you're hyper-focused. It, it, that's it's right. like any, it's like when you're doing anything else, you, you will only, you know, you can't see it. You you go into like you said, you go into crisis mode. It's it's no You're different. As good as your training, right? Uh, yeah, and it's it sucks when it happens to your your own family. We had a situation last year like that with my husband, and my God, did I ever handle it poorly? Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, it's it's crazy though because you all of a sudden the training is there, but all of common sense goes out the window, and you turn into a normal human being who all of a sudden is only hyper focused on one thing. So I can understand that, and that makes complete sense to me. But this book itself, um, and I recommend people go and get it. It's own your past, change your future. The, I recommend the audiobook though, because 
when they hear you, this is where I was going at the beginning. When they hear you speak the way you speak about the things you go through with the emphasis and passion that's put into each line, because it's lived experience as well as education, it is very much, um, universal at that point. You no longer have this, uh, I'm the doctor, you're the patient kind of uh, relationship. There is more of, I'm going to be super vulnerable. And then that allow in, that in turn allows that individual to be more vulnerable with you. And it allows that person to give them that much more of themselves. Because really, ultimately, that's what you're asking people to do in this book, right? You're, you are asking people to look at these steps that I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the playbook. I'm going to give you the blueprint. And... As long as you follow them, you will be successful. It's it's not rocket science. It's really not. It's it's small things, and some of those things I want to touch on. But before we do, you said something about um, that your grandmother said. You're like, why am I at Harvard doing all of these studies, all of this money, all of these people? I feel like I've heard this before. I couldn't have heard this before though, because <laughs> it's new research. And then you're like, no, it's. I've heard it before because it's common fucking sense. It sure. is, it's little things that we were taught when we were young, go outside, eat healthier, drink water, be around your friends. Like it is the small things that we stop doing as adults. So if you wouldn't mind going through kind of what a couple of those steps are so that people can get a little preview and then go and get the audio. I mean, the audio, seriously, the audio. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think most of the things we've passed along in fact, today somebody sent me an article. I just just got done recording my show, and I, the article was called "Don't Play with Your Kids Seriously," and the article is it's it's about a year old out of the New York Times. It but what it is ultimately it's it's a symptom of a greater issue in our culture is I want a particular ending to be true. Mm. I'm I don't want to play with my kids because they're annoying, and they my daughter's always talking about wolf dragons and crap. I don't know what she's even talking about. I had no idea that a child crapped as much as kids. I th thought they would go once a day, like a grown up. No, they go fifty. I didn't know there was that many diapers. You know, I didn't know all that stuff. I don't understand playing a game, and every time my son's dropping the ball, or we don't know how to kick, and then all of a sudden we're whining. You know what? I don't. I don't want to play with my kids. I'm just annoyed by it, and I get grouchy, and I get, and so I am going to academize a, a reason why that's okay, and I'm going to go all the way upstream. I'm going to put that down, and I'm going to call it science. And I'm going to move on with my day, and so we've done that with everything from you don't need anybody, you need mm -hmm. you, you need to go crush it and kill it, and you're your best friend, and you're your best you. You know what? Your feelings are the most important signal you're going to receive in life. Follow those things. And if you feel like this, you go do you YOLO and all. It's just nonsense. And then it throws away thousands of years of evolution and psychology and living together and religious and faith practices. It throws it all away, military practice, and says, you are the smartest person who's ever lived and you are your only lived experience. And then over here, my grandmother's like, shut up and eat healthy and get some water and go outside get some and now we've got a trillion dollar study that tells us ooh, you know what vitamin d is important you know what ooh, exercise and movement's good for you hey let's blow your mind uh new studies uh we're very lonely and lonely has a cascade of terrible physiology uh, physiological effects that ruin the human body um you should hang out with people and it's, it's the stuff that we've gotten so sophisticated, man, and we just have thrown away eons of just normal wisdom, right? And so it was a – where I got frustrated was realizing I'm 40 years old, and I just did what I was told. Hmm. You have to take out a huge loan to go to college. You have to get this car. You have to dress like this. You can't get tattoos that anybody can see. You can't – do this you can't do that you have to do this and i was following a bunch of made-up bullcrap blueprints towards quote unquote this illusion of this thing called happiness which isn't there's a whole other conversation mm -hmm. um and i i just realized how frustrating it was i just did what everybody told me and it was when i you, know, you kind of pull the blinders off and you back up and you're like hey how do we build a non-anxious life here how do we build a life worth living and then it gets real simple real it gets frustratingly simple real quick.
It does because you realize when you look back at all these studies, all this research, all this money spent that could have been spent on literally so many other things, <laughs> common sense should have prevailed, but that's fine. Let's just keep giving billions to a proxy war. Oh, I have issue with war now, my friend. I have issue with going and doing things. Um, and I think there's a bit of a war on our own society. I think within the Western world, the way that we've allowed corporations and individuals to you know, pickpocket our minds, if you will, go around and utilize our traits and our habits against us to then only make us more unhealthy. It's a real frustrating process to see because you finally get, well, people finally get to a point in their own healing where they start to like that layer of like, oh, no, oh, okay. So this is why this is happening. But it yeah. you you kind of forget that not everyone is there. And so there needs to be a level of compassion towards people's decision making and hope that they are doing things for the right reasons. That's a struggle for individuals. <laughs> I know that's a huge struggle. Well, I I there's a there's a thing in psychology called the fundamental attribution error. And what that is, is it's when I get inside your head and I decide why you made the decision you just, you just made. Mm -hmm. And so that guy cut me off in the highway because he's an idiot and he does drugs and he doesn't care about other people. And I forget the fact that he might be on the way to see his wife one last time before she passes away. Like, I don't know why, or when my wife, I don't know, leaves socks in the living room. And by the way, that never happens. It's the other way around, but let's pretend for a second. She leaves, so like, I start thinking, she did that just to piss me off because she didn't even care. She didn't care about how hard I'm working. And, and all of a sudden, I'm down a real, I mean, I'm down a rabbit hole that never entered her mind. It was never, you know what I mean? And so I really don't care why people have the motives they have. Um, that's a waste of my time and energy to go down that road. Um, what I can spend most of my time is focusing on my thoughts and my actions because at the end of the day, that's all I can control. And I think that's, something that needs to be taught more. Um, we don't teach how to think. We, we tell them how to think. We don't teach how to think. We don't teach critical thought anymore. Unless you're in university or college, you're not seeing it being brought into the younger classrooms. There's more of a focus on sexual orientation and young children being taught, especially in Canadian schools. I don't know if you understand that's oh, yeah. going on. Yeah, so that's Oh, fine. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, the greater orientation, even beneath the sexual orientation, is we're not teaching you how to critically think through things. We're teaching no. you that how important your feelings are. And it's like saying we no longer because feelings are important, right? They're the traffic signals. They're the they're, they're the, the the speed limit signs, but they don't tell you where you're going. Mm -hmm. And it's like we quit giving kid teaching kids how to read a map and how to draw a map and how to get from a to b and we just started focusing on the road signs look how pretty that road sign is look how important this sign is and now you got a bunch of kids who aren't going anywhere they're just staring at their belly buttons and the orientation conversation is it, it, it's it's a part of it but it's it's a symptom of a larger drama that's unfolding which is your feelings matter more than anything else in the world. And I think that's what's getting us into a lot of trouble. And only, we can only be doing that, staring at our belly buttons, because technology's allowed us to all have enough food and to all have uh, a relatively, uh, the relative illusion of safety. And we all have vehicles that go where we need to go and air conditioners. So we lack the need to get up and go eat today or to go out and beg God, will you rain? Because if it doesn't rain, my family's going to starve. That part of our world is on pause. It'll come back someday, but right now it's on pause. And so now we just have time to sit around and think about how we feel about everything. And feelings, I'm not a Neanderthal. I think feelings are really, really important. And my friends who are in the military, especially those who have gotten out, man, they've got to learn how to feel because they have learned how to take orders for a long time. They've got to learn how to feel and what their needs are. That's important, but that is not the destination. Now, your feelings lie to you on the regular. Yeah, our society is definitely uh, very hyper. It's so funny because we talk about mental health or we uh, politicize it, we utilize it or whatever. We exploit it, what I feel like more than anything. We exploit our mental health uh, mm -hmm. 
but in a time frame where we're talking so much about caring about each other's mental health, somehow we are the loneliest society in time. And I'm pretty sure you said, was it 15? Like loneliness is equivalent to like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Yeah, that's at the that's at the bare minimum. Just the okay. when your body recognizes. Think about it this way. I think I, I use this illustration from the book. If you were on the northern plains of Canada five thousand mm-hmm. years ago and you open your eyes one morning and your tribe had left you, you are probably gonna die. And so our body it wired into our, our bodies, not into our thoughts and into it wired into our DNA is this need to be with other human beings. We're co-regulated. I know where I am in space because of my relationship to other people outside of me, right? And when that's gone, our bodies become untethered. It sounds all the alarms, that's anxiety, right? That's where depression can start to take root. So we have created an environment, we've exported all of our relationships online. We text back and forth all the time. I text my wife a thousand times, I love you, I love you, I love you, great. That's registering in her frontal lobe. I'm giving her data, but I'm not letting her body feel that she is safe and connected, right? It's a totally different proposition. So yeah, we've created the loneliest generation ever and we are paying a, I mean, you can give people all the meds you want. You can give people all of the five steps to be less anxious. You want all that stuff. But man, if you're in isolation, if your body is screaming for human connection, you're not gonna be well, you're not gonna be whole. You can't be. And I I really think, you know, the group that perplexes me the most is loved ones coming back from deployment. Mm. Um, my buddies who are, you know, were SEALs who rolled out. The idea that I went from five or 10 years of this guy will get, or this man or woman will give their life for me, regardless. Like, no matter what, they die before me because that's, they will do anything they can to keep me okay. And I, I, I get done with my deployment. I get done with my, my service time. And then I'm just going to move to like a suburb next to Dan, who is like, Hey, uh, your papers on my yard. Like how, like if I have known the depths of human connection, I remember asking my buddy, who's a seal, do y'all love each other? Like, are y'all like, y'all love each other. And he said, when you're on mission, it is a unique and indescribable love that cannot be explained. It can only be understood and felt. Mm-hmm. And it was a st- the way he, he phrased it was almost was was poetic. H- how are you supposed to get that back? Because you know what it, what connection could be because you felt it, and now you have the incredible task of getting a new mission and getting a new gang, knowing it's never going to be that right. You're going to have to make some proxies there, but you got to you got to do the hard work of getting a new community, getting a new gang. The thing about the military that's really hard for I think a lot of people to understand is. When you, when you leave a deployment and you get out, it's so hard to find a community again, that number one has had some type of testing in their life. Uh, they need to be tested. Like there's, there's a type of person who's been tested in their life. Uh, there's a depth of them that you don't normally get from others. And you need to have an understanding around you because most of the time, at least over the past 20 years, people coming home from deployment are looking at a different type of life than say previous 9-11 people who never deployed anywhere who were in the military who still served their country but didn't do an active combat tour you're it's just a different type of group you need uh if you're dealing with trauma especially there's a lot of individuals coming home whether it's uh they don't think they have a tbi because it hasn't been, it's gone you know misdiagnosed or they've been you know, diagnosed with PTSD and their career is over and they've been overprescribed. So there's, you, you're getting kind of both, uh, both groups there, but the struggle what, at least, go ahead. I was going to say, you also, I think you come home without a mission, oh, without, 100%. A, without a reason for waking up. Right. And for the last one year, two year, five years, nine years, I woke up in service of fill in the blank this mission, this group, this gang, this, um, this unit, this particular task that we have to get done so that this group of people won't die, or this group of people can eat. And then suddenly again, you wake up and now you work at an insurance company. It was funny, one of my uh, a buddy rolled off of SEALs and now he's like a, a civilian. 
and I, it was awesome. I, he started a new job. I was excited for him. And I had it in my phone. I put a note text at 30 days. And so I reached out to text him and here's what I texted. You should be feeling insane right now. And you should be feeling like a caged animal in a cubicle. And he wrote me back or he called me back and was dying laughing. He goes, dude, I quit yesterday. <laughs> like, and I started laughing. I was like, Hey, you're not crazy. You're exactly where you should be. Like, like you come home, you're like, I'm going to put on a suit and I'm going to like iron my clothes and I'm going to be regular and I'm going to get a job. And then your body's like, no, you got to have a purpose. Right. So I think you, 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 Mr. Groups, you, I, I, I think one of the cornerstones of PTSD healing is community. And I think we, we don't emphasize that enough. Um, the, the cornerstones of trauma healing is community. Um, but man, you got to have a shared mission. You got to have a purpose. You got to have a reason for going forward. I think that's why you see so many groups or so many companies, uh, 5013Cs or, or legitimate huge companies that become massively successful like Black Rifle, there's a community built around that, right. right? So you've got, you don't just have, I don't know if you've ever been down to their sets or their things that they do. It's like, there's a million people around at all times. There's this huge community and the majority of them are veterans. So the dark humor, the conversations that can be had are very, very, very different than if you were to walk into, say, a Starbucks and be like, <laughs> I'd like to work here. Correct, I, couldn't think, yeah. I couldn't think of a more drastic uh, group of people to put in a room together. It would it would explode. Uh, but I think, <laughs> but I think you can find, I think you can find your community, but it's very difficult, especially if you are from any other military than it feels like America. America has bases everywhere. You mm. guys have a cousin or a brother or a sister that knew someone that was an uncle to an aunt that deployed here. Like you all are connected. There's, There's a, a web language. there. Yeah, oh, gotcha. it's yeah. super common. It, you, you're from Texas. So yes. maybe you don't realize the rest of the world doesn't like you. <laughs> like uh, at all. I, I'm gonna, uh, I think the, <laughs> I was going to make a Texas joke. And I'm just not Please going. do it. Oh, come no, on. It's not even worth it. Um, <sighs> no, it's. No. You're, you're, See, now you're contemplating wanting to say it. No, there was a friend of mine and she was uh she was a buddy of mine and she was a professor. She moved from uh Pennsylvania and we were talking about something once and she said, You know there's not a uh Toyota Tundra Pennsylvania edition. And I was like, What do you mean? And she's like, uh, look at that truck right there, the Toyota Tundra Texas edition. Pennsylvanians are more secure. They don't need their own truck. Unlike you Texans, y'all have to have your own everything. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a fit. It was awesome. It was a great joke, but yes, you're right. Like it's, it's, it's in the DNA, right? It's your grandmother has a gun at church. It's, 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 it's in the, it's in the water, right? Uh, yeah. this, this ethos that, um, but it breeds service, is, service is important. That's right. It breeds, it, it breeds a common language, right? Yes, it does. And the United States seems to have that for its military community, Canada, Australia, England, you know, all of all of the British military, we, we don't quite have what America has. And I'm not sure if that's because America is raised to believe, you know, it's God, it's service to country, you guys, it, you guys are a different group of people in the way that you're raised and what's important mm. to you and what's impressed upon you to be of importance, which I think helps individuals coming home because there is a different understanding. I mean, that's if you're not coming home to like New York or California or like Seattle or any of those areas in America. If you're going back to Texas, you're going back to the Southern states, it's a different understanding there. Um, but with that comes a lot of issues because with service, a lot of times comes over prescribing individuals. Um, I want to touch on that a little bit and kind of where your thoughts on are on that, because obviously, and I'm very clear when I state this medication is necessary for some things, not all things, and not at the um, vending machine level that we are doing to our veteran community. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we, I mean, if you just step back and take a 30,000 foot view, I think, it was really exciting 30, 40 years ago when we thought we found some chemical markers that we could heal people. Um, just like penicillin could get rid of an infection, man, with just the right pill, we can get rid of depression. And that idea is so beautiful. It's, man, that's fantastic. I could, I could make somebody better. 
can make somebody a more present husband and dad if I just get the right pill and the right this. And somebody who's sexually assaulted as a child, I could give you the right pill and it, your brain will just fix itself. Um, so that idea was so good. And I think it was so well-intentioned. Um, and then- As most things are when they That's start. right, that's right. And, and now it's a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar enterprise. And the idea was somebody, you need to be on something. Uh, you need to be prescribed something. Um, and I, I forgot the numbers off the top of my head, but it's an astounding amount of U.S. citizens that are on some sort of prescription medication, mostly forever. That's just, that's just the way it is. And so um, here's the way I like to look at most. Now, if you take TBI, I want to take TBI off the table because that is, that's, your brain is structured differently now, right? Yeah. Um, but if you take anxiety, you take um, not all, but some depression. So I'm going to be careful about diagnostics, but most of the time, mental health, the things we pass off as mental health disorders is our bodies, our brains trying to get our attention, that we're not safe, that we have found ourselves alone, disconnected from a tribe, or we don't have autonomy that somebody else is in control of our life. And, or we have started, we've activated a series of behaviors that are fight or flight or freeze. We are in an activated state because our bodies have determined we're not safe. That could be because we were abused as a kid and our bodies recognized love and relationships as something that hurts you. So that boss tries to get too close, that spouse tries to get too close, that girlfriend gets too close, it's going to sound your alarms, whatever the things that are going on happen to be. Or if you have been on deployment and you have seen your buddies blown up, if you've helped clean up a scene, your body puts a GPS pin in that moment. And it remembers it because it has one job, to keep you alive tomorrow and then to get you to the next day and then get you to the next day. It will, it will suggest you smoke because that makes you feel good right now. And it'll kill you later, but we're just gotta get to tomorrow, gotta get to tomorrow. And so we have gotten out over our skis with all these meds and we don't have the infrastructure, the relationship infrastructure. We don't have the churches. We don't have the educational communities. We don't have the veterans communities. We don't have these social structures, these neighborhoods, these fabrics that have been a part of human civilization throughout history we just drop you off the airplane and say hey appreciate your service um go get them and you got a body that's screaming for connection and a body that's screaming for safety and a body that's screaming for autonomy without the skill sets to go do those things and so a way to tampen down the alarms is with the meds um and so not always but in many cases, what the meds do so well is it turns the alarms down. And that allows me, so I had, I had a bad anxiety disorder. Uh, what the alarm, what, it, what meds did for me was it allowed me to turn the anxiety alarms down so that I could go talk to a counselor and I could go talk to a mentor and I could show up for lunch every week with a group of guys. And so that I could actually go, I started lifting every day with one guy we met every week. And so it allowed me, we've all been in a building, right? When the alarms are going off and you can't do anything in there when those, you can't make be on the phone, you can't read, you can't do anything. It allowed me to go about doing the things that helped me be well, that helped my body over time feel safe, that allowed me to connect with other people. And so then my alarms, by and large, turns themselves off, just like your smoke alarm will. If you put the fire out and the smoke clears, the alarms go off. And so that's what they do, right? But they rarely, not say rarely, they often are not the cure. The idea that you cure it is different. You've got to act and be and connect your way into um, mental health challenges, uh, in, into healing. Now, with major PTSD, with major uh, psychological trauma, it may be, yeah, you're going to be on something forever. And that's completely okay. Make your peace with it. And go continue to build a non-anxious life, man. Like, I just don't get hung up on it much anymore. 
I think it's fair to not get hung up on it, but it is definitely an epidemic in the community that happens to individuals on a regular ongoing basis. That is That's super right. concerning. So I bring uh, it up because absolutely. I think there, I, I don't think there should be shame in being on anything, but I think you should be aware of your body and really testing the boundaries of what you need rather than what you're told you need. Mm -hmm. That goes to your own thought process and your ability to think about anything, right? Right. If you're, if so you're my, my recommendation is always when I sat down with my doctor was before I put anything in my body, I want to have a game plan for how I'm going to get off. And he actually, my doctor was a friend and he actually placated me with like a six month plan. All right, in six months, we're going to wind down to this. He knew as well as I did, ain't no way you're, you're going to be clear in six months. Um, but it allowed me to move forward. And then we worked together on uh, winding it down. Once I had built, you can't just throw your crutches away, right? You got to go to physical therapy and you got to learn how to walk again and then you can start jogging and then you can start running and then you can make your way through the world without your crutches well it's about utilizing tools and things right. that you have around you you know the the tools in the toolbox is a real thing but for those that don't even have a toolbox right. you know there's a there's a lot of people in our community that are just trying to figure this out that's why they listen to this they try to find people's stories they can resonate with hold on to and go okay if that guy or that girl can get through it or do it and maybe find a tool that they utilize because they spoke about it. Uh, you know, they emulate that. So what's the basic tool? What's a small starting tool for people with PTSD and these, these types of anxious conversations. Goes back to, um, one of the most important quotes to me I've ever heard from David Kessler, who's the a world renowned grief expert. It's from a book he wrote called finding meaning, which I think is a masterpiece on grief. Um, but he says, grief demands a witness. And I think before rushing in to try to put the fires out, before rushing in to try to solve a problem or to treat your wife or husband like they're a broken car engine, and you just need to fix them, or yourself like some kind of broken computer you just need to fix. It's important to sit down across from somebody, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th time and be completely and totally honest and say, this is where I hurt. And this is what happened. This is what I did. This is what happened to me. And there's something about telling our story in the presence of other people. There's a reason why every religious tradition throughout history has confession as a part of it. There's something healing about sitting down and saying it out loud to somebody else. In a new book I'm writing, there's gonna be a chapter um, on the biology of secrets secrets kill us and so i would tell somebody who's struggling from ptsd who can't breathe in the middle of the night and they're trying to be tough and protect their wives or they're trying to be really cool and not let their husbands or kids know that they're struggling for the first time find somebody that you trust that you can be safe with and speak truth to them here's what's happening inside of my body here's the thoughts that keep looping and looping that i can't stop here's what i think i should have done seven months ago on deployment that I didn't do that resulted in whatever I think have stop holding those secrets. The physiological toll of secrets is so heavy, put the bricks down, as I like to say, and let's that that's step one of a healing process. Can we talk about the bricks a bit? You really kind of dive into that in your book quite extensively about you know, these bricks, these pebbles, these, these small things that we pick up and we hold on to or, or we put down. I think that analogy is brilliant. Can you kind of go into that a bit? Yeah, I just, I didn't know there was a physiological toll to trauma. I didn't know that trauma played its, itself out in strokes and cancer and heart disease and obesity and rage and in anger. I thought trauma was, it messed up my thoughts. I didn't understand the downstream ramifications of hanging on to it. And I actually thought, um, I've got experiences as a kid that I'll never speak about publicly. I thought that I just needed to get over that stuff. I didn't know that my body was going to continue to try to solve for that forever and ever and ever and ever. And so there's something important about recognizing if you've had trauma and you've either had trauma almost, I don't know anybody who hasn't. Um, and I think it's a fool's errand to compare trauma. You know, like, oh, you miscarried, but we lost a kid. Oh, yeah, you lost an infant, but we lost a seven-year-old. That's nonsense. Loss is loss is loss. Hurt is hurt, and trauma is trauma. Um, 
But if you had sexual abuse as a kid, if you had mom and dad never showed up for you, they never told you that you were loved, or your mom just mentioned how pudgy and kind of overweight you were your whole childhood, those behaviors will play themselves out as an adult. Your body will continue to try to solve for those things as an adult. And it's the physiological toll you're carrying around these bricks in a backpack. Um, and whether it's a bag full of pebbles or it's two cinder blocks because dad died in a car wreck and mom left when you were young, whatever you're carrying around over time, that weight becomes the same and your life's role, like your life's purpose, your mission, man, get those bricks out of that thing and walk as light as possible. Life's hard enough, man, without carrying a bunch of crap around. Um, and you can try to be tough and you can try to white knuckle your way through life. But as Vanderkolk says, the body keeps the score, man. And you can look at the ACEs data. If you've got stuff that you're not dealing with, man, you're more likely to, you'll, you'll die younger, you'll die aggressively you'll die from all sorts of different maladies because your body is just going to run out of gas trying to keep you safe and keep you alive yeah that's one of the biggest things i think uh should resonate with people is that the result of it, it just causes more than it than it helps to hang on to those things just being open and honest is the way to move forward with that well and we confuse so let's take military like on mission if somebody gets shot and yeah, passes different. away right you're on mission i have to keep moving forward right because if i don't this whole that idea works really really well in game time it's devastating in our day-to-day -day relationships at home and so it's being able to say um the way i like to describe it is when you're if you're a professional ufc fighter you go to you go to work every day you put on headgear and you put on a mouthpiece and you put on shin guards and then you beat the crap out of other people or you, you know, roll around and do jujitsu and try to choke and, you know, pretzel twist the arms and legs of your, of your colleagues. And then you get up and you take your headgear off and your mouthpiece out. And then you go to the supermarket and you treat that woman behind the register with dignity and respect and kindness because the things that you did at work are not acceptable in the public sphere. They're not helpful. They're hurtful. Similarly, the things that you are trained to do as a soldier, as a infantry person, that is super critically important during battle time when you're on deployment. It is really tough to hold together a marriage or raise a toddler with that same uh, level of, of energy, right? Well, you, that's why you see the special operations community upwards of 94% of individuals have been divorced. Mm. Mm. That, that's what's really tragic is when you look at the repercussions of these things they can all be they can all be helped but sometimes training overrides individuals ego to be able to dive into that and i know you, you have said to... the ego ego is the word right well if that's i can I... unplug that yeah no go go for it because uh, i was going to talk to you but we don't have time about psychedelics and the ego because that plays a lot with the military but yeah the ego is a massive 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 thing yeah i, I think it's I mean, egos, it protects us, right? And it's an illusion often, but it protects us from uncertainty and from feeling powerless and from experiencing powerlessness. And it also gets us in a lot of trouble and it gets killed and it gets us divorced and it gets us with kids who don't want to come home during the holidays and see us when we're older. And so there's something profound um, and necessary about ego often in our professional lives. And there's something profound about having a space where it's safe to set your ego down and to look at your wife or your husband and say, I'm sorry, how can I make this right? Or to look at your kids and say, uh, here's a good example. Um, my granddad played baseball and some of my earliest memories were me and my dad going to Astros games. I grew up in Houston and my dad talked about being a good baseball player. And one of our best ways my dad and I connected was I was really good at baseball at a young age and my dad and I would practice together and he would come to all my games. And then I was obsessed with the, the Astros sucked all of my life. And then all of a sudden they started winning a lot and I'll never forget one. I would watch, I would come home and instead of playing baseball with my son doing things, I was working like crazy. I would lay on the couch and we would watch the Astros together. I'd, I'd let grown men live my life for me. And he said one day, daddy, do you love me as much as the Astros? And I was like, oh crap. So I turned the TV off 
And we started playing ball together, and I it just became old hat. Like, this is what Deloney guys do, and we play baseball and whatever. This past year, he called a family meeting. He was 11, I think. And I was like, oh, dude, is he already, like, doing math? Like, he's 11, man. Called the family this. meeting, and he said, I would like to try out for the school play. And, but that would mean I can't play baseball this spring. Would that be okay? I've never been prouder of that young man. I was so proud of him. And I had to deal with this unknown bias I had inside of me that Deloney men just go play baseball. That's just what I I had every spring plan for the next 20 years of my life. And since he was going to be a scholarship player and then go on to the major leagues, I kind of had the rest of my life planned out for me. And so we we do this thing. I didn't realize I had an ego in that, that this is what we do. I just had an unstated picture and it took a brave 11 year old to say, Hey, what if I changed the picture? Would that be okay with the two most important people in the world, mom and dad, and both of us celebrated them. And I did theater in college and I consider that that's one of the greatest trainings for the job I have now. Um, so I was, it's not like a foreign thing, but I had to set my ego down and it, his path is not going to be my path. And thank God it's not. Cause I got, <laughs> I was kind of an idiot. And so we got to decide I'm not going to lose my marriage and my kids and my health and my addictions. I'm not going to suffer at the altar of my own ego. I'm going to do whatever it takes to set that thing down. Yeah. I guess that's a great way to end that. That was fantastic. I think that's so important. The ego is something that I feel like a lot of our our people struggle with, if only to protect themselves. It's been built up, right? Like you said. So I think addressing it the yeah, way it's you necessary. did is fantastic. Yeah, it's necessary. It's necessary. It's kept us safe, right? And yeah. those things that kept us safe when we were younger or when we were on deployment are often the things that divide our relationships as yeah, we move on. Swing. Right? Yeah, they swing right back. That behavior always sticks around. Um, but it's been awesome having you on the show. I do hope that we get to have you on again. We have a ton more questions and I'm sure with the amount of books that you've got coming and they just keep, because <laughs> you need more uh, activities, right? Oh uh, no, I uh, know. It's good, man. It's a, it's, okay. it's a, it's a, it's a blessing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, nope. I'm a fortunate, fortunate kid. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. You know what? If you've got something valuable to say in this world, you should uh, show up and say it. And I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that. It's not only going to help. I feel like help you as well as you progress in your life and the things that get thrown at you, but it's also going to help those around you. And if you don't heal yourself, you're just going to bleed on everyone else. And I'm glad that you showed your vulnerability in that book within yourself, because it's going to make others want to be just as raw because you started it, right? Sometimes all you need is a spark and that's where it takes off. And um, so I, I value people you like you in this community a lot. And I'm, like I said, I'm grateful for your time. Where can everyone find you on social media and get this really awesome audiobook? Audio. Awesome. Thanks, Kelsey. Um, and, and I just want to thank you for your hospitality and for um, being a voice in the wilderness for folks who have, are coming home and trying to rebuild their lives and not in, in a, uh, not rebuild and you know, it's all falling apart, but rebuild. Like I don't have a roadmap for what it looks like to mow my lawn every Saturday and to just be a dad who doesn't get out of control and be a mom who's not reactive. And, um, thank you for being a voice out in the wilderness for folks. It's, it's, it's a, it's an honor to get to spend some time with you. Um, you can follow me on the internets at John Deloney and, uh, you can go to johndeloney.com to pick up the book. Yeah, it's a great spot. I prefer that over Amazon all day long. So thanks for that. But, um, everyone else it's been Dr. John Deloney. We'll see y'all next week. 